It was a long time ago. In fact, it was 500 years ago. It was in 1518. A lot of you know the date 1517, because it was 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. These were statements intended to highlight the errors of the Roman Catholic religion and point to the one true gospel of Christ. His primary objective was to protest the the selling of indulgences. If you don't know what an indulgence was, it was just the selling of favors of eternal life in exchange for money given to the Catholic Church. We just have undergone a giant fundraising campaign, but I don't believe we've promised one of you eternal life for giving to this building project. But one year later, in 1518, the place was Heidelberg, Germany, And the event was a routine Augustinian Order General Chapter meeting. It was meant to be a boring, routine meeting. This was a Catholic theological conference, generally consisting of mundane business and dull theological lectures. This was the year that Martin Luther was supposed to come to his senses. They gave him a year. He was supposed to step back and and recant at least some of his 95 statements He was expected to obey the Augustinian order like a good, obedient priest that he was supposed to be. And so Martin Luther got up to speak for his lecture time. But instead of recanting and redefining and backpedaling, he fired both barrels of truth. He did it softly. He did it kindly. He did it calmly. But he didn't back down one inch in what would become known as the Heidelberg Disputation. And he used a theological method that has now become a normal method of arguing scripture, the the method of paradox. I'll explain that in a moment. He used the idea of paradox to fight against one of the church's deeply held beliefs, and that was called the theology of glory. The theology of glory says that by means of human obedience to the law of God, by means of my free will, I can reattain the glory that I once had before the entrance of sin into the world. That if I give to the poor, if I keep the sacraments of the church, if I do good in my free will ability to do so, in the end, God will smile on me and impart justification to me. That's the theology of glory. Well, Luther used the technique of paradox, and here's what it is. He simply said, here's what the Catholic Church teaches, and here's what Scripture says, and to pit them against each other. At the top of the list of the paradoxes, Luther stated that the church teaches that the law of God is the way to eternal life. But he gives this paradox, quote, The law of God, which is the most beneficial doctrine of life, is not able to advance man toward righteousness, but rather stands against him. In other words, the church is saying the law is your friend, and Martin Luther said, no, the law is that which stands against you and condemns you. He cited Romans 5.20, which states that the presence of the law of God serves to increase our trespasses. It highlights our hopeless state, our sinfulness. It points to our desperate need for grace. And what was the true answer, Luther asked? His final paradox He said, the answer is not a theology of glory, but a theology of the cross. We go to the cross of Christ. 
that through the cross, the true believer is not on some sort of faith journey, spending a lifetime trying to attain enough good credit with God that justification is finally achieved and glory is finally attained. Instead, justification by faith is a one-time event whereby a true believer in Christ is fully pardoned of sin by grace made possible through the atoning death of Christ. That it was possible through the cross to be completely, utterly, and totally right before God for all time, from a point in time. And in one speech, Martin Luther dismantled a false system. It was a system that behind closed doors the priests called managed doubt. Managed doubt says that priests could control people of the churches by keeping them perpetually working for their salvation, keeping them with enough hope to let them keep coming, but enough doubt to make them scared. In fact, some of the priests in attendance were so shaken by Luther's presentation of the true gospel rooted in the cross that they refused to go on teaching Catholic doctrine. And they began preaching salvation by grace alone. And some of these same men recanted the Catholic religion and were later martyred for the sake of the cross of Christ. For Luther, everything changed at the cross. Going all the way back to the Church of Jerusalem in the first century, the cross has been the recognized symbol of the Christian church. The Roman historian Tacitus in the first century and Suetonius in the second century identified Christians as, quote, those who follow a crucified criminal. That's who we are. And think about this. Crucifixion, in some estimations, is the cruelest means of execution ever invented because it prolongs suffering. It's public. It's humiliating. It involves punishing every major bodily system. It's an unimaginable way to die. And yet you think about this. This horrible means of death is our most treasured image and symbol, isn't it? We treasure the cross because for us, while we remember the necessary atoning death of Christ on the cross, for us, the cross is a symbol of life. It is life. God has taken the most awful symbol of man's cruelty and sin and transformed it into a demonstration of his heavenly love for the lost sinner. And that's why it is appropriate to display the cross as empty. Because Christ died on the cross, but he was raised from the dead in full payment for sin. Here in our new facility that has been graciously given to us by the Lord, the cross behind me was made lovingly by some of our own church members, and it was constructed from the beam of a 200-year-old barn in Pennsylvania. And it's a fair representation of the cross of Christ. It's rough, it's harsh, it's painful, but it's empty. And the cross behind me stands as a reminder, it stands as a symbol, as a witness to us all that the death of Christ is the central defining feature of our faith. And this morning, it's our goal to demonstrate through song and through the word of God that the cross is central to the mission of Grace Bible Church. We determined that our first Sunday here would be one thing and one thing only, a direct gaze at the cross. In fact, just to show you how central the cross is to be, I'd like to have you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
1 Corinthians 1, and we'll begin in verse 22, and then we're going to go to a couple of other places as well. But 1 Corinthians 1, 22, I need to give you just a little bit of background to understand what Paul is about to say here. In the ancient Greek world, there were men who made their living going from town to town, from city to city, making speeches, holding philosophical debates. They were a combination of public speakers and newscasters and debaters and even actors. They, they kind of were a one-man show. These professional public speakers were called sophists. It comes from the Greek word for wisdom. In fact, some families trained their little boys from a very young age in the art of public speaking and acting and debate because this investment was a very lucrative way to make a living for the whole family. You attract an admission-paying crowd, maybe even attract a patron who could support your career, and it was a means to great wealth. Well, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel in the city of Corinth as recorded in Acts chapter 18. In fact, the Lord had revealed to him that he had already prepared many to believe, and that's what happened, and he planted this church. But the Corinthian believers, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you know that they were plagued by difficulties at times. You know that they had their problems. And one of those difficulties was that of being enamored by worldly customs, worldly standards, such as the custom that public speakers should be really entertaining, just like the sophists. And apparently, to some in the church in Corinth, Paul's preaching just didn't live up to that entertainment expectation of the professional speaker. But Paul pushes back hard against any notion that the preacher is to be an entertainer of any kind. He would maintain that preaching must center on the cross. And he says this here in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom slash entertainment. Read that in 23. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul was a lousy preacher. It doesn't mean that he was boring. It just means that he made no effort whatsoever to entertain anybody. He simply gave truth. And here's what he gave. Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't teach and preach other topics in the word of God, but the core message was always Christ. Preaching anything else without Christ becomes an exercise in Christian moralism at its best and a misuse and abuse of the word of God at its worst. And sadly, American evangelicalism is plagued by man-centered preaching. Preaching that uses the cross of Christ as a means to an end. That, yeah, it's great to come to the cross so that I can get to the real goal, which is my personal happiness and fulfillment. There's no other word for that. That is heresy. I would defy anyone to find one New Testament sermon which uses the gospel as a stepping stone to personal happiness. Listen, it is the cross that makes the New Testament message unique. It's the message of the, the revelation of God's Old Testament promises now coming in the form of permanent salvation from sin through the promised Messiah that the Old Testament gives us promises and shadows of, but now they're consummated, they're completed in Christ. The cross 
is what makes all the, the insufficient animal sacrifices of the Old Testament obsolete. The cross is what gives us the, the imagery and the, the, the symbolism of the tabernacle now made real. It makes them make sense. The cross is the means by which the new covenant promised by God in the Old Testament in which God would change the hearts of his people forever. The cross is how the new covenant was launched. I would have loved to have met some of the great prophets of the Old Testament. I would have loved to have met Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and Ezekiel and Daniel. Oh, what a thrilling conversation that would have been. Those were great prophets, and they had some information. But they would have been floored by a simple sermon on the cross of Christ. Yes, the prophets predicted the cross. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 tells us this. But you and I can look back on the cross historically. We can see the blood of Christ in the pages of Scripture. We know the name of the Messiah, Jesus. We can look on a map to know where he was born. We know what manner of child he was. We know the day-to-day details of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. We know the exact day and time of his crucifixion. We know the day and time of his resurrection. We know that he has ascended into heaven to be the advocate for all who would believe on him until that day when all whom he has chosen have believed and he returns to the earth to bring judgment to the wicked and reward to his people. Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Amos and Joel and all those men would have sat right here on the front row and go, wow, that's amazing stuff. That's normal for us because of the cross. Everything hinges on the cross. Now the cross has been reduced to an ornament, to a good luck charm. Don't worry, I'm not looking around to see who's wearing the cross. It's all right. But it's been reduced in our world to a mystical symbol to ward off evil. But the true message of the cross can't be tainted, can't be watered down, can't be edited to please people, can't be transformed into something that makes your immediate circumstantial life better. It can't even be about making you emotionally happier. When the New Testament speaks of the cross, it speaks of it theologically, of substitutionary atonement, of the fact that no human pride, no human work, no human achievement, no human merit can gain favor with God whatsoever. But only by means of the sacrifice of Christ could sin be paid to the one to whom the debt was owed, and that is God himself. So I'd like to talk to you about the true message of the cross. Because the true message of the cross is not about your personal happiness. It is not about fulfillment. It is not about getting things from God. The true message of the cross, if I could put it this way, is shocking. And in fact, it has some shocking consequences, but they're biblical realities. They must be received. They must be fully believed. Because the message of the cross goes far beyond the trite little churchy phrases that Many of us, including me, were brought up hearing and saying phrases like accepting Jesus into my heart, phrases like committing my life to Christ, phrases like starting a personal relationship with Jesus. Those sound so good, don't they? They're light years away from Scripture. They have no bearing on the true message of the cross. What I'd like to do this morning is just take a brief tour to some other New Testament passages to show you what I'll call four shocking consequences of the cross. Four shocking consequences, and these shocking consequences have players in the drama of the cross. 
These consequences involve the sinner, they involve the false Christian, they involve the true Christian, and they involve God the Father. Those are the players. But let me give you the first shocking consequence of the cross. The first shocking consequence is that the cross enrages the sinner. The cross enrages the sinner. And you might be saying right now, this is not a happy topic to open our first Sunday with here. Can't you preach on flowers and birds and things like that? Just have to preach what the Bible says, and the cross enrages the sinner. Sinners get enraged just when you call them sinners, right? Even though every true believer in Christ humbly calls himself a sinner saved by grace, can I put it this way? When a sinner says, how dare you call me a sinner, they just prove they're a sinner because of the sin of pride. Besides that, I'm not the one calling you a sinner. God has done that adequately and abundantly in Scripture. Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let me stop right there for a moment. This does not mean Paul was a lousy public speaker or a boring preacher. It means that he didn't believe that the words he spoke had one iota of power unless he's speaking the words of God. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not the eloquence of the speaker, not the the entertaining nature of the speaker. Verse 18 is the crux. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Did you catch that? The word folly. It's foolishness. To those who are perishing. It's a word that means nonsense, stupidity. We get our word moronic from this Greek word. That anyone who believes the gospel of the cross of Christ must be a moron, an unenlightened, idiotic, naive, foolish person. To the perishing, to the lost person, the cross is offensive, it's odious, it's insulting, it's rude. In fact, the Apostle Paul dealt with the offensive nature of the cross. Turn over a few pages to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians, Paul is arguing against a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who claimed that to come to faith in Christ, you must keep the law of God, you must keep rules, and that essentially you must become a Jew before you become a Christian. This is most evident in the Judaizers' insistence on the law of circumcision. And in fact, some of the Judaizers said, well, Paul is preaching circumcision also. Where would they get this? Why would they make this accusation? Well, they probably used against him the fact that since Timothy, his protege, was half Jewish, Paul had asked Timothy to be circumcised just to avoid any criticism as he preached the gospel. Acts 16 tells us about this, that Paul refutes this accusation. He refutes this argument strongly on the evidence that if he was still preaching circumcision like he did as an unbeliever, then why are the Jews still persecuting him? Chapter 5, verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, here it is, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, Paul has already explained that he would never preach any good work 
including circumcision, including keeping the Old Testament law as part of the gospel. He said in chapter 2, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is righteous. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So how is the cross an offense? It was an offense to the Jews specifically because they couldn't believe the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah, even though the Old Testament predicted this multiple places. The cross ended the law of Moses as a covenant, but that was their entire identity, so of course that's offensive. The cross fulfilled, it ended the sacrificial system, it ended the law of Moses, and much more so it destroyed any notion whatsoever that somebody could obey the law in order to come to faith in Christ. So it offended the Jew. That probably doesn't apply to any of us here. But more generally speaking, the cross offends all unbelievers. Because here's what the cross says to the unbeliever. It says, you can do nothing for yourself. You cannot be made right with God outside the cross. There's not a single good work. There's not a collection of good works. There's not a lifetime of good works that you can do to earn favor with God. And the cross enrages the lost who will not submit to the need for salvation. Some of you here who have witnessed the gospel of Christ to the unbeliever have seen the look on their face when you say, You can't do anything to please God. God thinks all of your so-called good works are like filthy rags. In fact, they enrage him. Your good works mean nothing to him. And you can see the look on their face. And what is it? It's a look of anger. And what you pray for is that it's replaced by a look of hopelessness and despair because that's where they need to go. But why is this the case? There are many reasons that the cross enrages the lost, enrages the sinners. I just want to give you three. First of all, the cross offends human wisdom. It offends human wisdom. The greatest minds in all history, the smartest men, the smartest women, the most astute philosophers, the most self-righteous, the greatest university professors and scholars cannot in their own power see the necessity of the cross. No man comes to the conclusion in his own intellect, in his own power, he never comes to the conclusion, you know, I just figured out that I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God. What conclusion does sinful man come to? I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good person. That is always the conclusion. In fact, here's the massive fault with that line of thinking. The self-righteous unbeliever makes a fatal assumption. And the assumption is, is that they have the ability to use logic and reason to discern truth. They think that falsely. It's a human logic. It's a human reason that always leads to a high view of self and a low view of God every time. In fact, let me give you an example. This is the easiest one to understand. The inability to use logic and reason is very easily proven by one statement very often made by unbelievers. Here's the statement. There is no God. There is no God. This is probably the most arrogant and illogical statement that anybody could ever make because it's completely unprovable, isn't it? What does this say? Here's what they're really saying. I have been everywhere in the universe at every point in time, and I have the capability to perceive things in every possible way beyond my five senses. That's what they're saying. No wonder Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, if my mind can't fathom God, then God must not exist. 
And if in their little darkened minds they come to the natural sinner's conclusion that how dare you say I can't comprehend spiritual truth. I'm the most spiritual person I know. I was out in a field of flowers the other day and I smelled that flower and I, I sensed the spirit of that flower. I'm, I'm a spiritual person. If you tell them you can't comprehend spiritual truth, they become enraged. Or 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So the cross enrages the sinner because it offends human wisdom. The cross also offends human sophistication. It offends human sophistication. The unbeliever cannot bear the cross because of how utterly simple the cross is. Rather than look to the cross upon which God poured out his wrath against sin on Christ Jesus instead of all who would believe on the Lord, the unbeliever mocks the notion of substitutionary atonement. And so what, have, what, what has mankind done instead? They've invented elaborate religions, elaborate false versions of the gospel, which always include complications and hurdles and barriers. This is exactly what Paul nailed the churches of Galatia for, for adding to the simplicity of the cross. They wanted to add requirements to the cross. They wanted to add rules. They wanted salvation to be by grace plus whatever they want to add. But Paul reminded them boldly in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Why does the simplicity of the cross offend the so-called sophisticated mind of the unbeliever? That brings us to a third reason the cross enrages the sinner. The cross offends human efforts. The cross offends human efforts. Don't we want to have a part? You know what doesn't sell well in grocery stores? Are things, mixes that you don't add anything to. Those don't sell well. But when they figured out to say add water and an egg, it made you feel like you had a part. Even the unbeliever who has some notion, some belief in God, when he lies to himself that all of his good deeds will grant him favor with God, he's offended at this notion. You ready for this? I think we often say your good deeds won't get you anywhere with God. But how often do we say your good deeds are infuriating to God? They enrage God. They bring out the wrath of God. That's angering to the unbeliever. But why is God infuriated at so-called good deeds? Because someone has dared to think that by doing some little good thing, they can reject a holy and just God at the same time. In fact, when the pastor preaches free will, that someone needs to make a decision independent of the power of God. You know what he's basically saying? He's basically saying Christ died to put you in a savable position. He has now handed that off to you, and it's up to you to do the rest. But the true gospel presentation throws the sinner to the ground in the dirt. The true gospel is what Jesus said in John six forty four: No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A true gospel presentation destroys the sinner. Ephesians 2.5 says you're dead in your sin. How many good works can a dead person do? None. And that only by the grace of God can you be saved. 
the biblical truth that not one so-called good thing a person does contributes even a molecule to salvation is infuriating. Why? Because it dethrones the unbeliever from their own self-righteous roost. It's insulting, it's maddening to the proud sinner to be told that there's not one little thing, one tiny offering of good work, one slightly inherently good part of himself that God looked at and said, yeah, I like that guy, I think I'll save him. There's not one. The cross offends human wisdom, human sophistication, human efforts. It's a shocking consequence. There's a second shocking consequence of the cross. The cross exposes the false Christian. The cross exposes the false Christian. Look with me in the next chapter, Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul is going to open the lid on the true motive of those in the church who would add legalistic rules in order to be saved. Those who are adding the law of Moses as a requirement to come to Christ. Galatians 6, verse 12 shows us their real motive. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. Stop right there. What does that mean? To look really religious, to look really churchy. Put it in terms today. This is the guy who comes to church every week. He's here Sunday morning, Sunday night. He's in a Bible study. He's doing all these things. He, he wants to make a good showing in the flesh. Who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. There's their motive. The ones Paul is exposing here are those who are trying to appear to identify with Christ, but in reality, they have no concern for inward righteousness whatsoever. They're obsessed with religious pride, and he exposes them as cowards. You don't want to be persecuted for Christ. What did Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12? He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the church attender. This is maybe even a faithful longtime church attender. Maybe it's even someone who figured out the right words to say in the so-called salvation testimony, but who in reality will associate with Christ, listen carefully, only to the degree that it costs him nothing. This is the cultural Christian who attends church in order to be seen by others, in order to appear to honor Christ. But when the heat of any sort of persecution turns up, they wither and fold and are exposed as cowards. When was the last time we saw this? How about 2020? The church was divided into those who would be persecuted for Christ and those who would not. It is possible to identify yourself with the church, but not identify with the cross. But eventually, the true gospel will expose that person. This is the person who wants a form of Jesus. This is the person who wants a Jesus who will deliver them from injustice. This is a person who wants a Jesus who will give them good feelings. This is a person who wants a Jesus who might even save them from unhappiness, but not a Jesus who will save them from sin. And ultimately, the false Christian has his self-righteousness exposed Because when he rails against the cross, he rails against the grace of God. I have lots of friends who are pastors, and I enjoy those relationships. And one topic of conversation often is, you know, how do you you know there's a fake? I mean, Jesus promised this, that there will be tares that grow up with the wheat, but how do you know? There's one way, one particular dynamic, one particular weak spot that the false believer in the church can't help. It's a tell. It's a giveaway. 
It's a clue that he may not, in fact, be regenerate. No matter what theology he spouts from his mouth, no matter how many Bible studies he attends, no matter how much theology he's read, here's the telltale sign of the false believer. And it is that because he has never truly received grace in salvation, he cannot abide extending grace to others. He doesn't love the church. He doesn't love people. He engages in what Charles Spurgeon calls private persecution, the private and mothered disgust and even hatred toward others in the church. This exposes the fact that he believes he's more worthy of God's affection than somebody else. It's no wonder that 1 John speaks so frequently that the true Christian loves and cherishes and delights in the fellow believer. Why do we delight in one another? Because we look at each other and say, you know, except for me, I would think I was maybe the worst sinner ever, but we're both terrible, but we're both at the cross. If I told you the backgrounds on half the people in this room, you would run out screaming going, I didn't know there were people here that used to do those things. But we're all humbled at the cross. And we love one another because we look at one another and we say, I know how bad you used to be. And I know how bad I used to be. But under the cross, we're made new. This is the litmus test for all of us. It tests the genuineness of your conversion to Christ. First John three fourteen, John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's the tell. That's the giveaway. The genuine believers, we we gather under the shadow of the cross and when we look at one another, we see Christ in one another because of grace. And even when we irritate one another, we can smile and say, you know what, you're not perfect now, but you will be. We see Christ in one another. We fellowship in closeness and in love and in unity. Why? Because we share blood. We share the blood of Jesus Christ. And I would remind all of us that the most chilling, the most jarring, and the most shocking eternal warning that Jesus ever gave was not to atheists, it wasn't to pagans, it wasn't to cult members, it wasn't to people on the street who just didn't care one way or another. The most shocking statement he ever gave where he would say this, I never knew you, depart from me. Who was he speaking to? to church-attending false believers, to religious fakes. The cross enrages the sinner. The cross exposes the false Christian. There's a third shocking consequence. The cross kills the true Christian. The cross kills the true Christian. You might be saying, well, this is just getting worse. I don't even want ice cream tonight. (laughs) Why would you preach such negativity on our first Sunday? Look just a couple of verses away at the contrast to the cowardly false Christian we saw in chapter 6, verse 12. Look at Galatians 6, 14. Here's the contrast. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul has just said that the legalists want to be able to boast that they've convinced people to follow the law of God. But Paul says, Not me. I don't want any part of that. By the way, in the book of Philippians, Paul makes a reasonable case that he may have been the greatest law-abiding Jew of all time. But he says, I don't want any part of that. My only boast is in the cross of Christ. And then Paul drops two theological bombshells. He says, 
First, because of the cross, the world has been crucified to him. That all the world system, every, everything that's ever been important to him from a, a fleshly standpoint, human achievement, wealth, power, fame, glory, hopes and dreams, it's all been killed at the cross. This is absolutely earth shattering. You mean that the Christian faith is not about making my dreams come true, about giving me my best life now, about coming alongside my yearnings, my aspirations, about making Jesus my co-pilot? I thought that's what Christianity was. Nope, you're close. We just have to add something. The cross is about taking away all your dreams. It promises you persecution in this life. And the cross kills your yearnings and it buries your aspirations. What is the only type of person who has no hopes, no dreams, no aspirations? A dead man. And he gives a second theological bombshell that because of the cross, the Christian is dead. The Christian is dead. Paul has been crucified to the world. Nothing in the world matters to him anymore when compared to the wonder and the power and the joy of the cross. Listen very carefully because we want to be precise about this. The gospel is not about saying, well, my priorities really shifted when I became a Christian. No, the gospel and the cross is not about shifting your priorities. That'll happen naturally and and unexpectedly. But the cross is about dying to all your other priorities. Dying to yourself in favor of being a follower and worshiper of Christ. Jesus made this crystal clear. Mark 8, 34, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? cross and follow me and i know that we use that metaphorically well you know i had to pay extra taxes this year that's the cross that i bear or i hung up this picture on the wall and it's crooked that's the cross that i bear i had a flat tire yesterday this is the cross that i bear i have uh, eight kids and only four of them turned out okay that's the cross that i bear and i understand that metaphor that metaphor did not exist when jesus used that phrase take up your cross take up your cross meant one thing go to your death That's all it means. In fact, Jesus stated that same principle in the negative in Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, you must pronounce yourself dead. You must lose your life. But this is the glorious paradox of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That if you want to desperately hang on to your good works, if you want to desperately hang on to your self-righteousness, to your own self-deluded merits, which you think are going to somehow impress God, then you will lose your life. You will lose your soul. But if you come to the cross and you say, I'm depraved, I have nothing to offer I have a horrific lifetime of offenses against a holy God. If you plead the cross, and if you say, God, I cannot save myself, God, I only want the blood of the cross, that I may be made holy in your eyes. God, I will follow your son. I give up my life, my wretched, worthless, self-righteous life. Then and only then, by losing your life for the sake of Christ, do you find your life, and it's eternal life cross is shocking the cross enrages the sinner the cross exposes the false christian the the cross kills the true christian 
I told you there are four shocking consequences, and you're going, please, Lord, let Steve have one positive point today. Here it is. The cross satisfies the Father. The cross satisfies the Father. Turn with me a few pages away to Colossians 1, verse 20. Paul has just written perhaps the greatest single statement of the person and work of Christ in all the Bible. We read it earlier this morning. That Christ Jesus is the image of God. That Christ Jesus created all things. That Christ Jesus powerfully holds the universe together. That Christ Jesus is the head of the church and that in him the very fullness of God dwells. And then Paul caps off this glorious exposition of the person of Christ with the redemptive work of Christ. Colossians 1 verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That through Christ the believer has been reconciled to God, that peace has been made with God. You might say, how is this possible? What is it exactly that happened at the cross to reconcile you. I I understand the good intentions of those who put little signs on highways that say Jesus died for your sins, but that's not the whole story because it doesn't explain why. It doesn't explain why that was effective, but Paul does. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what the cross is effective for in your life. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, here it is, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is the record of debt? It is true, judicial, biblical guilt. When the word world speaks of guilt, They think of it as an emotion or a feeling that somebody has, maybe when they violate even their own standards. It can be a bothered conscience. That's not guilt in Scripture. Guilt is much more tangible. Guilt is a record of debt. It is a legal document, as it were, that demands payment. The record of debt literally says it's a handwritten document, and it's taken from legal language. It means a certificate of indebtedness. Something you owe. Remember when you signed on the dotted line to buy your house? That's what this is. You owe something. And this record of debt here is a metaphor for a document that you wrote with your own hand. And you might say, wait a minute. I never admitted anything before God. Yes, you did. Every time you sin, you sign that document over and over again. What is the record of debt? It's an admission that you owe God for violating his holiness. The record of debt is an IOU. An IOU. How massive is your IOU? Hebrews 2 verse 2 says that every single violation of the law of God will be counted against you. Every single one of them. Every lie, every time you manipulated someone for your own advantage, every bad attitude, every insubordinate act, every ungodly thought, every disrespectful word, every time you ever rolled your eyes at your parents, every grimace given in anger, every theft, every angry word, every angry thought, every angry deed. Let's just go with your thoughts. On average, you think about 50,000 thoughts a day. If you're 99.9% righteous, that's still 500 sinful thoughts a day, and that doesn't count all the thoughts you acted upon and all the thoughts you spoke. 
Right about now is when the unbeliever starts saying something. Here's what they say. But I've done a lot more good things than bad. Yeah, I know I've done bad things. I'm not arguing that I'm a sinner, but I've done a lot of good things. What's the faulty assumption there? The faulty assumption is that the good things I do somehow will make up for the bad. That even if you could do good things in the eyes of God, and Romans 3 says you can't, they don't pay the debt. Try this with your mortgage company. If you still owe money on your house, go to your mortgage company and say to the mortgage lender, I have mowed your lawn 500 times. Would you please forgive the debt? Thank you for mowing my lawn. No, I won't forgive the debt. This is the record. This is the demand. This is the debt. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. You can't pay that. How long should an unrepentant sinner be punished? It's a very simple formula. The unrepentant sinner must be punished until he is able to undo every lie, until he is able to raise to life every person he's ever murdered in his mind or literally. He's ever able to take back every careless word, undo every single hurt. Obviously, that's impossible, and so the guilt remains forever. Therefore, the punishment is forever. Guilt is not an emotion, it's not a thought, it's a legal indictment, a confession signed by your own life every single day that you have fallen far short of the glory of God. But at the cross, your debt to God was satisfied. He canceled the record of debt, and it says, interestingly here, nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? It was very common when a criminal was crucified to nail to the top of the cross Those things for which he was being executed, the things that he was guilty of, the things that were true about him. What was nailed to the cross of Christ? The sins against God's perfect holiness for which you should have died. Now, we know that something was nailed to the cross about Jesus. The truth about Jesus was nailed to the cross. This is the king of the Jews. But what was spiritually and legally in the courts of heaven nailed to the cross about you? Every single thing you owe God because of your sin. How is it that God has just set aside this IOU? It's because the IOU is paid by somebody else. That's why the cross is effective. And listen, God is perfectly just. Never, ever mistake God for a Santa Claus figure. Hebrews 2 verse 2 says that every sin will be recompensed. Every violation will be paid for. But God is also perfectly gracious that when he forgives sin and forgets our trespasses, and you say, how can he be just and gracious at the same time? He's just because he satisfied his wrath on the person of Jesus Christ. And he's gracious because he accepts that payment on your behalf. Now, my point is is that this is a shocking consequence of the cross. Why is that shocking? The psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward us, toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's shocking. That's shocking. How many of your sins will God ever mention to you again? Zero. For all eternity. Never again. It's as if they never existed. 
Here's what God says. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What does it mean when God says, let us reason together? Here is God's logic, if I can use that human word. God's logic is, you can either attempt to pay for all of your own sins for all of eternity, and you can't do it because you can't undo a lie, you can't undo a theft, you can't undo a murder. You can attempt to pay that for all eternity, be rejected and be in the flames of hell for all time. Or you can let my son pay it for you and be with me forever. Come now, let us reason together. The unbeliever rails against the cross, and yet the most logical thing to do is to run to the cross. The theme verse of Grace Bible Church is Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim. The center of our mission is the proclamation of Christ and the center of our proclamation of Christ is the cross. And I would say to all of us, don't be offended at the cross. Don't be offended at the cross. It's at the cross where you lose your life. It's also at the cross where you lose all your sins. If you're the one who senses that maybe you're seeking Christ right now and you came because you're curious about our new building, forget the new building, be curious about Christ. It's only because he's seeking you first. Can I put it this way? The cross of Jesus Christ is open for spiritual business. It's open to the destitute, to the lost, to the weary, to the helpless, to the ruined, to the worst of all sinners, and yes, to the proud. For the one uncertain, if you were in Christ, could you rest assured that by trusting in his work on the cross, you are made righteous before God? It's a one-time transaction You're set free from sin. You rejoice forever in your forgiven state. You'll be reconciled to God as your father and no longer as your judge. And for all who have already trusted Christ as Savior, I would call all of us to remember our calling. What is our calling? Lift high the cross. The love of Christ proclaimed. Till all the world adore his sacred name. So Christians follow where our Savior trod, our King victorious, Christ the Son of God. Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim, till all the world adore his sacred name. That is your calling, that is my calling, and may God use us to fulfill that calling. Let's pray. Our Father, we come now because of the cross of Christ to a time of sobriety and a time of delight all at the same time in which we come to the table, the Lord's table, in which we, in very simple terms, remember the body of Christ broken for us and we remember the blood of Christ shed for us. And we would ask you now, our Father, to help us to adequately and to consummately remember the sacrifice of our dear Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.